The Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community. Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Pursuit of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. I'm Ryan Buck, Artist Development for New Leonard Media, and with me, as always, is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. How are you, sir? Hey, Ryan, I'm doing well. I got a new rain jacket. That is enough of that. (laughs) Today, our guest is Nancy Bourdine, writer, speaker, educator, and author of the upcoming children's book, What Do You See? How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Excellent. It's so nice to have you here, and thank you for bringing visuals. This is very, very exciting. (laughs) I know we were talking a little bit before uh, we were going. This is your first official podcast, and I can already tell just by your positioning you are ready to go. But in researching you and just saying your introduction, what does it mean to be a writer, speaker, and educator now in 2022? Now in 22 is what I hear the most when you ask me that question. And I think that now to be someone who has a voice and someone who knows how to convey ideas to other people, the most important thing is to use your voice and your abilities to the good and have a purpose and have a mission with it. And for me, I aim to have my books make the world a little better place. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. My mother taught me, wherever you go, leave the place better than you found it. And I think that applies to the world as well. That's such a lovely sentiment and thing to say, but sometimes a little more difficult to do than one might think. It it takes a little work to do that sometimes. I'm already experiencing that. (laughs) Today, I was notified that a boost for my Facebook ad was turned down because it was political. And because I had some words in it describing my next writing effort, this novel coming up. Given what I know, I can't imagine what would be so incendiary in the description (laughs) of your next book. (laughs) It it surprised me to get the notice. Wow. And um, it made me think, All right. Sometimes if you are trying to unravel something less than positive, you're going to get resistance. Well, look at you courting a little controversy already. (laughs) Look at us with, with, you know, the bad girl of literature right here. This is awesome. There's totally nothing wrong with that. And at any time, I'd be happy to boost a uh, post for you since we've been certified or we jumped through their hoops to do political posts. Wow. Okay. I like that workaround. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your initial book focuses on critical thinking skills, diversity awareness, observational skills, and creativity. How did you come up with those particular sets of things to focus on for your first book? Or did the story come first and those types of things fell into place afterward? I will try not to give you the longest version possible of that. Well, that's okay. I worked a lot at the Historical Center here in Traverse City back when it was Con Foster Museum in the zoo. And, the um, zoo. Oh, my goodness. And we did heritage celebration days with the local fourth graders. And I was recruited to teach them about quilts because I'm a quilter. 
And that lasted for over 10 years that I was the quilt lady. And the adage in writing is, write what you know. So I started to create this book about quilts based on the things that I observed those fourth graders latching on to when I would talk to them and what would gain their interest and really engage them. So I worked to put that in a book, but then that wasn't quite enough. I wanted to also have the book do more than just educate about quilts. And my background as a healthcare educator is I develop programs for critical thinking to help staff develop their critical thinking skills. And I also did training in diversity sensitivity. So I incorporated those things into my book with learning activities and also the way that I designed the book to be. So uh, remind me what the question was and I'll finish the answer. Absolutely. So (laughs) you had critical thinking skills, diversity awareness, observational skills, and creativity, those four particular areas. And I, I was curious as to whether the story found its way into those four areas naturally, or you focused on those four areas and the story followed. So you're trying to find something that fit there. And what I'm hearing you say is you brought some of your professional life into a creative life, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. But so you landed in an area of quilting and that brought you to what you're passionate about teaching. And also because I had hired a writing coach And she was an incredibly insightful woman. And she said, your book is, you know, has, it's engaging and that sort of thing. But if you want it to be something that's of value to parents, to teachers, to librarians, include some lessons in it, some learning activities. And so that's part of how I brought in the creativity and diversity, um, equity and inclusion into it by tapping into those things that had been in my career. That's fascinating to me in how a writer like yourself takes some pretty heavy concepts and weaves them into a narrative for kids. So you knew you had quilting, you knew you had diversity awareness and all of these things. How did you approach the story? But the story had already been written. I actually wrote this book the first record I can find of it on my computer was 2008. But it took attending a writer's conference online last year in the midst of the pandemic to get me excited about doing something with this book and connecting with a writing coach who was really powerful in helping me to make this book what it is. And the rest has just continued on. You mentioned The Quilt Lady. So what does that title mean to you right now? Right now, I think I have a fascination with quilts and an incredible fondness for them. I can remember sitting with my gram when I was like four years old and cutting out quilt squares as she watched Jeopardy. And so we would sit there and cut out the quilt squares, and she showed me how to quilt them, and she gifted us, each one of the kids in my family, with a quilt when we graduated from high school, and she just really made me appreciate quilts. And so there's something I like, there's something I've picked up from her that I do. And now I've been collecting quilts, especially the quilts that are in my book, so that I can take those to classrooms and give kids a chance to really get their hands on that kind of stuff. It feels like quilts 
naturally lend themselves towards a story because there's many facets and you can do a lot with the look. And to our listeners, I, I have a little sneak peek as to what you may be seeing coming up when you purchase What Do You See? And uh, gorgeous work. So this is really exciting. But looking at your history and how you've gotten to this point, what is it about your knowledge and love of history that inspires you as a vessel for your current messages? History came to me through vintage clothes. My mother inherited the clothing from Great Aunt Doris's house. And Great Aunt Doris was the only child of only children. And her father was a physician, so they had some very elegant clothes. Sure. And my mother loved these clothes and let us play dress up with them. And I've always appreciated vintage clothes. I think they have classic style. I'd much rather watch the clothes on a vintage movie than a current movie. And I began collecting vintage clothes for a while, had a little vintage clothing booth in the antique malls in the area. And my clothing collection is how I got into the history here because they needed somebody who um, could help them costume some of the mannequins at the museum and had some expertise really? in that. Yeah. I always wondered how that happened. Wow, okay. Yes, one of my coworkers was painting a mural for the museum, and they said, we need bathing suits of this era, and we need children's bathing suits of this era. Right. And they said, man, who are we ever going to find that's going to have those? And she said, you know, one of my friends... She collects that kind of stuff. And that's how I became associated with them and eventually a board member and eventually a member of the Heritage Days cast of characters. This is a very detailed characters. Th- I mean, if anybody were to call out like the inaccuracy of the kid's bathing suit in that little diorama, that would be something. So they were committed to legitimacy. Oh, yes. Did you have any vintage bathing suits in your surf shop? Because you had a surf shop. Yes, my husband and I had a surf shop and... We actually did have some vintage bathing suits just for the ambiance, and we had some mannequins dressed up yeah. in 1915, 1920s swimsuits, and then my best right. friend- Weren't they wool back then? Yes. You know, full body, like wool, I think, or lycra, I don't know, what was happening? No, there wasn't lycra yet, and even into the 20s, Jansen was still making knit wool swimsuits, but now that they were knit wool, they had some flexibility. The guys got to wear those, but the girls still had to wear those things that kind of looked like a sailor dress with pantaloons and stockings and a hat. They had to change in a wooden structure on the beach. Mm -hmm. It didn't sound like as much fun. That's why they called it bathing back then, I guess. Actually, the ladies waded. They They didn't swim. They waded. So you received your BA in nursing science from MSU, and the bulk of your career was spent in nursing, correct? That's right. And with Munson. Yes, at Munson. I came to Munson. I'd only had about four years or so under my belt. And I came to Munson back in those days when it felt like the Munson family, and you kind of knew everybody in the house. We all had like this sense of pride that we were doing our best to take care of our patients. And it was a great feeling. And The most of my career, I really enjoyed working there. Yeah. I love that you said that once feeling the Munson family, you know, I have a nurse in my home, and so I have a very soft spot or high respect for the trade. And unfortunately, as all areas grow, it goes from a Munson family to a Munson monopoly. 
And what? that's that's what my coworkers that I stay in touch with tell me it feels like these days. Um, and I'm sad to hear that. But we, we don't need to necessarily take it in that direction, but I can edit this out if you don't want it told. Ryan, on the way here, hmm? Nancy got a flat tire. Oh, no. <laughs> and I had to go pick her up. And then also, like, through this, okay, from 10th Street back to Bates Street, yeah. I learned that her garage blew up. Blew up? Last year, her yes. Gra- her garage blew up. And I guess it exploded. And, or, and when she originally got interviewed for Munson, somebody's finger got cut off, correct? Yes, my manager. I had to be Wait. transported to my manager's home on 15th Street from Munson to be interviewed because one of the crew had gotten his finger cut off the day before and they hadn't known how to handle it. And my unit that I ended up working on, we reattached appendages. And so she said, this isn't going to happen again. So she stayed at her home to be there in case any more things got cut off. And that's where I had my interview. And I looked at her children's wedding pictures on the walls. And we had tea at her table. And we chatted. And it was just lovely. I mean, how do they not offer you the job? Or how do you not say yes at that point? I don't know. (laughs) Be awkward. Somewhere in there, it was like a cat. Got a hold of a the finger. Cat got or... the finger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> cat, cat got your tongue. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, cat and that's the why they couldn't reattach it because the, it's too contaminated. Bang bang. I, wow. So are you saying that we should Greatest be watching out for some kind of catastrophic uh, podcast failure? No, actually, I framed it in that this was a bumpy start to this interview, <laughs> but I had had other interviews that were just as oddly started and introduced. That worked out really well. Oh, good. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, drawing upon that 30-year career, was there any watershed moment along the way that kind of pushed you into the trajectory of writing? As an educator, I also spoke in my role at Munson, and I liked the challenge of speaking at conferences. And so to speak at a conference, you have to create an outline and you have to create a pitch. And so much of it is very similar when you create a presentation, your speech. It's not that different than writing something. And I'd always liked writing as a little girl. I grew up absolutely loving books. Books were my salvation when I was a little girl. So for our listeners who are aspiring writers, and you kind of touched on this, which is interesting, how would you guide somebody into becoming a speaker, into becoming a writer in this day and age or at whatever stage in their life or career? How would you guide somebody who may be a little intimidated? The industry standards, write what you know, start small, small successes breed larger successes. If you belong to an organization, write something for their newsletter, write an op-ed piece for your local newspaper, Just uh, start writing little things, doing blogging, get comfortable with expressing yourself with words and see where it goes, see where it takes you and join a writing group. I've belonged to a couple of different writing groups and they are the best incentive of anything for me because you are accountable to your fellow writers. We set goals every week. Or um, another writing group, we would have a challenge each time we met, and you had to write there on the spot, and then we shared things afterwards. But wow! But being in touch and sharing concepts with other writers is just 
is really, really vital to developing yourself, developing your voice, learning what the possibilities are from here. Wow, that's incredible. This podcast is still free, right? Yes. That was all free, everybody. <laughs> just FYI, because I learned a lot. When talking about a creative piece, something that you've created, the messaging um, is important. How, how long did it take for you to find what the messaging, diversity awareness, critical thinking, how, how hard is it to find something to hang your hat on that you really want to pursue specifically creatively? It goes back to tapping into what you know. That was my experience and the things that I enjoyed most about being an educator, a healthcare educator, was developing those modules on critical thinking and the modules on diversity awareness and sensitivity. Write about the things that you know, things that you have a passion for, things that you have an interest in. Tell the stories of your grandmother's recipes or whatever it is that you enjoy talking about. Right. And aside from that aspect of it, writing what you know, sometimes people who are trying to make a difference, who are trying to be uh, creative to make a difference, need to look ahead. So diversity awareness, I think, is critical. And, and that will remain steadfast. We will always have to focus on that and should critical thinking. Is there anything you as an educator or that you're seeing maybe around the corner that will be the next thing that kids will need to focus on, the next thing that may be of concern that we should be talking about now before it becomes a problem? Yes. And, and I aim towards that with this young adult historical fiction novel that I'm writing. It takes place in Leelanau County. I have done a lot of research on Leelanau County. My husband and I won a weekend at a bed and breakfast up there. And we stayed at this fabulous inn just steeped in history. And they let us take a tour of some of the other buildings. We were friends of the innkeepers. And that inspired me to write my first novel that has never seen the light of day and probably won't. It's going to sit in my drawer. But it was a cute little, it was a nice little story. You know, my writing group said positive things about it. But whenever I sent it to publishers, the consistent reply was, it is not multicultural. Things now need to be multicultural. And this was coming from potential publishers. Yes. And initially, I know that's frustrating, but what did you think about those kind of reactions? I grew up reading things like Nancy True and Little House on the Prairie and that sort of thing. So this idea of multicultural was a challenge to me. I grew up in a very white-bred northern Michigan community. I didn't have a lot of experience and exposure to other cultures, but I thought, how can I add culture to this story? And I remembered that that was the new mission with Reverend Doherty, who had the original mission on Old Mission Peninsula mm -hmm. here, and it was a school to teach the indigenous peoples how to become more white because it was inevitable that the white man was coming. So I started studying some of the Anishinaabe ways to make one of the characters in that book be an Anishinaabe elder. And the more I studied those ways, and I was reading PhD-level books on Anishinaabe ways of knowing and being, and I just, I appreciated that wisdom so much. And I never did finish making Henrietta um, an Anishinaabe elder, 
because the more I read, I just really realized how important and rich and valuable and decent this culture was that the American government worked so hard to destroy. And I realized that I had to take all of that knowledge that I was gaining. And I had also worked with Anishinaabe leaders, uh, medicine people, when I was doing my diversity program as a healthcare educator. And that's how this next book came to be, this one that is untitled yet, but it's about the culture clash between the Native cultures in northern Michigan and the mission schools programs. I can't remember now what your question was, but I just felt like I had to say those things. Well, <laughs> and, and this, this is, it's, it's a young girl who's studying to be a medicine woman, correct? Correct. I, I think, honestly, um, I, I was reading a little bit about that, and to hear you talk about it, I do hope it does not stay in a drawer. No, I have so, an agent for that book already. Perfect, because yeah. that sounds like a phenomenal story, and it's a theme that does come up, is is that loss of language, loss of culture uh, for indigenous peoples. And it's uh, thrilling to, to hear you say that uh, that there could be additional yeah. literature about that. And talking Leelanau County, old mission, new mission, I mean, you're talking Treaty of 1836 and that land being stolen, renegotiated for 1855 to move us over to Leelanau County and the short amount of time that it took for all that land to be stolen until the 1970s when we were down to about 12 acres. And the demand that by the government that you could not purchase land unless you abdicated yourself from the yeah. tribe. Yeah, unless you proved that you were going to be the new way. The, uh, uh, and I just... Yeah. the Assimilated. Yeah, the assimilation mm -hmm. thing. Um, Ryan, the loss of language... The Anishinaabe language is written so differently and spoken, and it has a whole different mindset to it than English, and that they looked at everything as having a spirit, and that everything needed to be reciprocal, and everything needed to be kept in balance. That was a human's responsibility to creation, it was to keep things in balance. And just the beauty, those big, long words that have so many syllables that non-native is that a pc way to say yeah, it? yeah of course a non-native non person has so much trouble pronouncing right. is really because the that word is a sentence that describes that object and what it does and how it interacts with those things around right. it and that whole mindset is just i'm so grateful that there are people who are recovering that language as much and as rapidly as possible before we lose the elders who could speak it fluently Keep in mind the amount of people, you know, we had to point this out when we went to develop our properties in Grand Traverse County, and there was issues with the way that the street names were going to be written out. And there was some pushback about like, well, you know, first responders won't know how to enunciate that. And we got to take the time to point out how many Anishinaabe words you use daily and may not know it. Mm -hmm. So if you're heading to Kuwaitan, if you're heading to Muskegon, Heading to Petoskey, Sheboygan. These are all the right. Anishinaabe Moan words. And I had gone to the county commission and pointed that out for them. That We've the, learned how to pronounce those. Yeah, we, say, we say Michigan every day. fascinating yeah. and a mm -hmm. wonderful point. I'm going to quote you from a February 2022 kidsreadnow.org article 
And I thought this was wonderful. And quote, a vital part of self-awareness is acknowledging your own stereotypes and biases. Consider the ideas you absorbed from family, teachers, religion, and the media that don't serve you or your students well today. I think that's really profound. And that might be simple, but given thought, it seems very difficult because those are institutions that you mentioned, family, teachers, religion, and we are told not to question those. So how do you do that? How do you try to objectively identify what is bias from all the years of those institutions telling you you shouldn't question that? What are the things that pop into your head just with a click that when you see something or hear something and your brain wants to remind you that isn't that just like one of them to do that? And examine where did that come from? Is that really what I think? Who told me that was truth? And is that what I want to continue carrying with me? Right. It's recognizing a kind of command and response uh, reaction in your own brain, but that's where self-awareness comes and talking about self-awareness, self-actualization. And again, harder concepts to maybe achieve, but just, again, having the conversation is a good thing. I thought that was an amazing quote. And another piece that kind of came from that was Social awareness equaling empathy. Do you think that that's true? Oh, definitely. It's one of the most important things in social awareness is to consider how what I have said or done or those who came before me said and done, how that impacted other people and how anything that I will say or do or that our elected officials say or do you know, is that, how is that going to affect the world around us? And is that going to make it a better place for everybody or just for some? Right. True. I will go back a little bit when you're talking about social awareness and empathy, back to the book that I have written and drawn out for children. In the learning activity, to help them have more social awareness, I encourage them to look for things that they have in common. I have intentionally placed in this book children of a wide variety of expressions of the human genome. I have tried to include kids with prosthetics and kids with different abilities as much as you can in a picture book intended for young children. And what I want them to see is that everybody gets excited about these kind of things and everybody may be a little bit concerned about those kind of things. But there's something inside each one of us that connects with everybody else. And that's one of the learning activities is to help them recognize that. And how could they use that to develop inclusion strategies? Yeah. One of the pages in the book here is, is intended to be cut out of the book. And it will be paper dolls of each one of the characters in the book that kids can wrap around their finger or put on a glue to a little craft stick. And the adults who are helping them with this learning activity can help them there's a series of questions to help them develop inclusion strategies that they can do with these little finger puppets. And so oh, that's cool. I think that the children, you have to start there. That's where we learned those things that we're self-evaluating now as adults. But if you can teach children a different way to look at things than them and us and see that everybody's an individual and that we all have 
oh my gosh, I'm going to start preaching here. I don't want to go that far. But what I want to—that is one of the things that, <laughs> that I um, hope to accomplish with this book—is that creating the the desire to hear more. I think that is exactly what you've done. All right. <laughs> no, go ahead. That old song—it's old, probably to you guys. I grew up with it about. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them them lead lead the way. And so I hope with this book to foster some empathy in kids and foster them to look at being different as possibly a value and that the beauty of all these different expressions, when you put them together, is even more beautiful than them as individuals. That's another one of the art projects that's in the book. That's why quilting really is is a perfect through for you. We don't have to pay for that one, Houston song, do we? Okay, good. Also from the Kids Read Now article, which I thought was really fascinating, and I'm not a big sports person, so I got to learn a little bit more about aspects where I do not have a lot of knowledge, but you talked about Tony Dungy, the first black NFL coach to win a Super Bowl, and he talks about the quote about the importance of inclusion initiatives and how emotional intelligence is foundational to their success. And I think it's kind of interesting to hear you talk about sports and inclusion, because I think in general, sports always felt like it was a very select group. And maybe that was just my experience in high school, but sports, (laughs) the jocks, you know, they were better then, and it was very cliquish. So I thought it was interesting to see that there was an NFL coach talking about inclusion. It's important to think about what he came up through to get to where he was, and he's retired now, so he probably dealt with a lot of people thinking that he was less than because of the stereotypes and what the soundtracks that were in their heads from what they grew up on. And he talks about how important it is to function as a team with everyone being valued. That if there are members of the team that aren't valued, the team is not as strong as it would be if each person were recognized for their individual strengths and abilities and their contribution and appreciated for that. Oh, that's excellent. And the Indianapolis Colts just last month announced the Tony Dungy Diversity Fellowship Program. Just last month. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know so, that. And he just kind of popped back on their social feeds to say how honored he was. And I thought that was pretty cool. Another quote of yours I think is phenomenal, so sorry to quote you back to you a few times, but marginalized people have been socially groomed to not speak up. So how would somebody know if they were in that category? How would they know to recognize that they may be marginalized if they don't know, and what would your advice be to them? Well, you would need to recognize that you were marginalized. Marginalized are the people who have been groomed to not speak up. If there's a meeting of some sort, and you are included at that meeting, and you have something that you really wish that other people would know about or think about or consider in this decision-making process, but you don't speak up because how would they take that from a person like me? Then you are marginalized. I'm trying to think of this quote about having a seat at the table and having a voice at the table. It's probably a really famous thing, and I'm, I'm completely yeah, missing it. Yeah, it's bumper stickers. It's out there on bumper stickers. So, um, But uh, if you're a teacher or if you're a coach and there's somebody in your class or on your team or a subordinate of yours at work that doesn't speak up, 
it could be because they feel like they, as a person like them, can't speak yeah. up. I'm trying to get to maybe somebody is marginalized, but they just don't recognize. They just think that they're shy. They just think that's the way it is. And trying to help somebody who you know may need to realize, I need to find a voice in this or I need to have more agency. Yeah. I'm trying to think of how that was for me because I'm female and that in in this country has been seen as a lesser person. It's not been that long that we had the right to have our own credit cards or apply for a mortgage or and vote. Those are the things that, you know, yeah, vote's a big one everybody talks about, but there's more that was yet to come well after suffrage. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in an environment where I wasn't supposed to say something or be smarter than the boys. And I was at the top of my class. And I purposefully did not bring myself down so that I would be in a position I shouldn't be in. I really embraced that. I grew up listening to Helen Reddy sing, I Am Woman. And my friends, the people that nurtured me, nurtured that you are a person, you are just as good, and don't let anybody tell you that because you're female, you can't be this or that. Right. And I think that's why it's lovely that people have access to or are supported in in the creative arts and in writing and expressing themselves that way. At least if that's a way that they can share what they have, even if they don't show it to anybody for a while. And that's what we hope when people listen, that they are inspired to do the same. Oh, by all means, and yes. You and had, you had a, a writing coach you mentioned, and that was somebody who, who helped you along. And you're showing me and, and us this book. Have you shown other people the book along the way? Who would you love to have look at your stuff at this point, even the next novel? The big turning point for me in realizing that this book had something to give was when I presented in my writer's pod and we meet on Zoom. And one of the women in my writing pod is a mother. She has a first grader and a third grader. And when it was my turn to read my piece, and because this book has got about 100 words in it, and it's the images that really convey the purpose and the messages in the book, so her kids were there, and they were I could see them on the screen listening, and they were like beaming and smiling. <laughs> and when I finished reading it, we do a lot of American Sign Language on our Zooming so that we don't make too much noise, but we can still show appreciation. And her kids were there applauding me in ASL, and that was really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Looking back on, on your journey professionally, creatively, was there any advice that was given to you along the way that at the time sounded insane? but later became very true? Imposter syndrome. That anybody who creates something and puts it out for the world to consume, there's something in them that says, who am I to do this? How can I create this and put this out there? And it is really common in my friends who have gotten their books published is this imposter syndrome that... Right, um, right. I'm yeah. just me, and I did for this. this. Should this be but, for me? Yeah. You know what? Anybody else who wrote a book was just them, and I think of like Gone with the Wind and other classics like that. That those are written just by people, just regular people. And Beverly Cleary, who I loved reading when I was a kid, she was a elementary school teacher, right? Who, when she retired, 
took everything that she had learned from working with kids and understanding all their little quirks, and she put it into these stories that were like, I could so relate to. That's a good point. You look back at some of these authors and given time, they just seem like, you know, they're idols and they're, you know, Shel Silverstein seems like a, an, an actor at this point was just a person. I don't really know much about him. He's kind of grumpy, I guess. And uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder started out writing weekly articles for her local newspaper, The Farmer's Wife. I think that might have been the title of her column. And she just wrote about farm life. Well, that's just and and her daughter on brand said, "Mom, you've got these great stories. You need yeah. to make these into books." That is exceptional. So, do you really sing as well? On top of everything, yes, I belong to a singing group. We're called the Intrepids. The Intrepids, because oh, we have been singing outside for the last two years on our street. Because of COVID. Because of COVID. Porch <laughs> fest. <laughs> It's, it's like a porch fest kind of thing, but we stay far apart. We make sure we stay 15 feet apart when we sing because singing projects more airborne right. um, viruses. So we sing. We've been doing that since really, really, really early in the lockdown. It was inspired by um, the people of Italy standing on their balconies and singing operas oh, yeah. together. Yeah. And so we decided to just get together and sing, and we aim for optimistic songs or upbeat songs or hopeful songs. And there are two households that have been keeping it rolling all this time. And we've had different households join us. We have weekenders that come and join us. We have snowbirds that join us. And we keep doing it because it's our therapy for us to be able to be outside during the early parts of the pandemic. It got us outside every day. It got us doing something positive. Singing is a breathing exercise, and just the songs that we picked, and then after we sing, we gather spaced out on a porch so that we can gab, and we eat chocolate now. We somebody brings chocolate each day, and we share the chocolate chocolate bar. Never hurt anybody. That's that's great. Yeah, (laughs) it's fantastic. The the intrepid. So, are are, do you post like when are do you do shows or anything? Would you post? Oh, no. Performances? No, no. No. Some of my fellow singers are quite self-conscious and really were very hesitant to let the Record Eagle take their picture when we were featured. At that point, we'd been singing for, I think that was the 300-day mark. And last week, we hit our 600-day mark. All right. So we're just... There's going to be a groundswell. I mean, people will hear this and, sorry, the Intrepids might have to to do a show eventually. Yeah. How can folks get in contact with you? You do have a website, correct? I have a website, but I have not gotten it professionally polished. So right now, I would recommend that if somebody wants to contact me, they can find me on my writer's Facebook page. And my name on that is Miss Nancy Writes. So I think you can also find it if you just do my name, Nancy Bordine, B-O-R-D-I-N-E. And that would be the best way to reach me. And I would love to hear back from somebody who heard this. And the upcoming book is called What Do You See? What do you want to tell our listeners about the book or how they can possibly uh, get it? Anything like that? Sure. It is being published by Mission Point Press right here in Traverse City. Um, That's awesome. So I will be aiming to get it into local quilt stores 
Definitely libraries. I am very open to coming to classrooms. I love engaging with kids. And so to bring my book and my collection of quilts for them to learn from and play with and then inspire some creativity and do some of those learning activities with the kids, I would be so thrilled for that. Excellent. Well, thank you for the sneak peek, too. I mean, I I don't normally get to see insider stuff like a book before it comes out, but... uh, Nancy, thank you so much for all of your pursuits and for helping ensure that kids have additional tools to build their critical thinking, observational skills, diversity awareness, and just grow positively as people. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. To our listeners, thank you all for listening and thank you for pursuing the positive. Ladies and gentlemen, on the behalf of New Leonard Media, I want to thank you for joining us again on the Pursuit of Podcast with the pursuit of Miss Nancy Wrights. Nancy Bordine. For more information on books, creativity, critical thinking, visit MissNancyWrites.com. That's M-I-S-S-N-A-N-C-Y-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. MissNancyWrites.com. And as always, for all things audio, video, podcasting, check us out at NewLeonard.com.